We come today in looking at the text on the side to a very uh, well-known passage, just one verse from Isaiah chapter 7, uh, but we'll be, I'll be reading the entire chapter. We won't look in detail at the entire chapter by any means, but I'll be reading the entire chapter to give you the setting for that uh, one beautiful verse that is echoed in Matthew as well. Let's hear the word of the Lord uh, to us, Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ermaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshua, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrified, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Taviel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ermalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee of the streams of, of the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, 
Because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land, we eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines, worth a thousand shekels of silver, will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. An awesome view of judgment at the close of that passage, worthy of wailing. <laughs> but let's get the context of this, uh, of this incredible narrative with this uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful prophecy buried in the heart of it. You all have noticed, perhaps your eye, eye drifted back to chapter 6 in Isaiah. It's, it's no coincidence, I think, that this narrative comes right after that, that uh, passage in chapter 6 that we've looked at before, that you've probably read on your own, of uh, Isaiah's call. You remember that awesome experience that he has of, of uh, the glory of the God being revealed to him in, in, in at least a small measure, and that, that being enough to, to terrify him and to realize his own sin and the uh, moving experience of cleansing of that sin that he receives. And, and then that, that commissioning that he received there in chapter 6, as, as God said, okay, you're going to go out as my spokesman, you're going to speak my word. But in, in something that, in, in an expression that must have broken the heart of Isaiah, he said, you're going to, God said, you're going to speak that word, but the more you speak it, the more your people will reject it. Yet your word, because they do not receive it, will actually harden their hearts and prepare them for judgment. And we see exactly that happening then. In our text, watch how you see that unfold in our text. Exactly what God said is going to happen, happens here. But despite that, God, God will get the glory. So what's happening in, in, this, uh, in this historical setting? Well, we have the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the northern ten tribes, remember, split off from Judah and Benjamin in the south. And so you've got Israel, as we usually call it, in the, in the north. You've got Judah in the south. And so the, our attention is called in the beginning of the text there to uh, Pekah, the son of Ermalia, the king of, Egypt, of uh, Israel. And he's getting the backing of Syria, which is to the north and, uh, and east of Israel. He's getting the backing of Syria, a larger nation, to come against Judah. The backstory on this is that Assyria, which is farther to the north and east, is on the rise once again. It has been. There was a period in which that threat sort of subsided as the king of Assyria dealt with, for, uh, dealt with uh, problems to his east. Now his eyes are coming back across the Fertile Crescent, back to the land that we know as the Holy Land. And in fact, ultimately, he has his eye on Egypt. So, so he's beginning to, to stir up again. And so Syria and Israel, knowing that's happening, those kings say, we need to form an alliance here 
to be ready to meet that threat. And so they proposed to Judah, Judah, join us in that alliance. And Judah says, no. And so uh, the king of, of uh, Israel and the king of Syria say, well, we'll make you join. We'll take down your government and we'll put a new government in that will enter into alliance with us. So that's exactly what's happening here. Okay, you've got Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, and they're coming down toward Judah once more. Now, this is really bad news for Judah, because actually, if, if you examine the chronology carefully, Judah's come out on the losing end of encounters of both of these. Okay, they've been defeated. Judah's forces, the Jewish army, has been defeated by both Israel and by Syria, and now the two are combining to come after them. So they're in really bad shape, at least from a human perspective. They're in really bad shape. So that's the setting. And notice, before we leave these uh, opening verses here, uh, the way two kings in particular are identified. Okay? You, you want to watch for names in scripture. And watch when somebody is called by a name they're not usually called by. Uh, we see that with significance in the New Testament, right? Simon's name becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. Okay, well, look at, look at uh, the opening of chapter 7 here. Notice, Pekah is referred to as the son of Ramalia. And that becomes the main way he's identified in this passage. Later on in the passage, his name's not used. He's just identified as the son of Ramalia. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is he's not a descendant of David. That's the important thing that it means. See, after Israel splits off from Judah in the south, their kings are not descended from David. And in fact, there is a rapid turnover of those kings. Okay, in a relatively short amount of time, Pekah, who has come to the throne by assassinating his king and trying to set up himself and his family as a dynasty, he's going to be assassinated, taken down. And that happens over and over again in Israel. The important thing to notice there is he's not a son of David. He's a son of Hermalia, which means, essentially, theologically, Nothing. He has no right to claim a Jewish throne. Okay? Now notice in the next verse, in uh, verse 2, we read, When the house of David was told. Now who's that? Well, that's Ahaz. But by calling him, referring to him as the house of David, I mean, it's clear that, that he's the one addressed Right, because it goes on to say the heart of Ahaz shook, okay? So obviously, house of David, that's, that's him. But you see the significance there. It's being emphasized to us, this guy who's on the throne in Judah is a descendant of David. He is in the Davidic line. Well, irony there then, isn't there? The descendant of that great warrior king David, 
He's shaking in his boots. We probably use the expression, shaking like a leaf. And everybody else is as well. Now remember, again, a little bit of background. Remember who established that house, the house of David? Was well, God himself. Uh, you could go back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build a temple to God. He's got a palace, and it says, it's not right for me to have a palace. I want God to have a temple. You know, we're still just worshiping with the tabernacle, that portable structure we used in the, in the wilderness. And, and God gives him an incredible promise. He says, you can't build me a house. Okay, yeah, I, I don't need a house, for one thing. Okay, you couldn't build a house big enough for me. But in terms of a temple, your son's going to do it, not you. But I'm telling you what I'm going to do, he says through the prophet, Nathan, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to establish you as the head of a never-ending dynasty. And David is overwhelmed, as you can imagine. Overwhelmed at such, such an honor. But that's the background. This house of David has been established by God. Okay, it is a theocracy, not primarily a monarchy. The house of David is the house declared by God to rule his people. So we have a conflict between the house of Ramalia, which has no standing, the house of David, which is established by God. Who's going to win? <laughs> Who's going to win? We know the end in a sense even before we begin here. But Ahaz doesn't. Ahaz is really sort of a pathetic figure here. He is a cowardly king. So the Lord uh, sends Isaiah to meet him there in verse 3. God meet Ahaz, you and Shir Yashuv, your son. I don't like to have that for a name, Shir Yashuv. <laughs> well, you'd like it even worse uh, if, if we called him by what he, his name literally is, which is a remnant will return. I don't like to go around being called a remnant will return all the time. <laughs> That's what his name means. Now, Isaiah's name, by the way, means uh, salvation is in Yah, or Yahweh. Uh, so, in a, so, so already we have a message for Ahaz. When he sees salvation is of Yahweh and a remnant shall return coming up to him, he ought to have been reminded of the promises of God, just in seeing these two. Well, notice that he doesn't see, he doesn't hear either. But the Lord sends Isaiah to meet uh, this, this man, taking along his son, sort of a visual lesson. They meet, we're not exactly sure where this is. Archaeologists have some guesses as to where exactly this is. But it appears, reading between the lines, that the uh, king must be out inspecting the water source for the city. And obviously that would be an important thing if you're expecting a siege, which Ahaz thinks might happen. 
Okay, so he's expecting the waterworks. City under siege has to have a source of water. So he's out doing his kingly thing here, and Isaiah is sent to meet him. And he gives him, he's sent to meet him then with two positive and two negative commands. And what I hope you will receive today is to receive these commands for yourself. He wants you to put yourself in this text. Ahaz is being given two positive and two negative commands from Isaiah. I really hope that you hear these as commands to you. Let's walk through them quickly here. First command, be careful. Take heed, some translations put here. Be on your guard. Okay, sounds like wise wise, uh, counsel. Wise direction, this happens to be the same, the, the same root word is that used when God puts Adam, the first man, in the garden and tells him to keep it. Literally, he says to guard it. Be careful about it. Now, Ahaz, the fearful, might have thought to himself, I, I am on my guard. I mean, I'm out here expecting the water. Where I'm getting ready you know, what, what are you telling me that for? I'm taking heed of the situation. In fact, although it's not stated here, he's already coming up with his own solution for the threat from, Isaac, from uh, Israel and Syria. He's already negotiating behind the scenes. And so he thinks he's, he's being careful. He thinks he's... he's Handling things just the way that he should. About what are you on guard? About what do you take care? Be careful about your appearance. Take great care of your possessions. Are you very careful about your finances? Now there's obviously good taking care of your body and handling your resources financially that God gives to you. You should be on your guard against foolish use of your money or wasting the material blessings God has given you. You're to take heed to act responsibly when you're in a position of leadership, and you're to be careful to be submissive to those in authority over you. But we would have to say that biblically, that, that taking care, that being in your guard, that, that's not to dominate your life. Okay, these earthly responsibilities, these earthly concerns are not to be uppermost. They're not to, to make you their slave. You're not to care about these things to the point of worry and anxiety. What should be your ultimate care and concern? Well, you know the answer, right? It's to keep the Lord first. We hear that all the way through the scriptures, don't we? People of God are told that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, take care, exactly the same word. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that Yahweh your God has forbidden you, for Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Take care, you don't put anything above God. 
God has made promises to Israel, and Israel was to make and keep promises to God. And central to that was their allegiance to him. Now, there's warnings, but there's also blessings associated with this. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, just a couple of chapters later. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that is God's law, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land overflowing with milk and honey. When you're on your guard and taking care to, to keep the Lord first, you're assured of God's promises of an eternal inheritance, far surpassing an earthly one. Okay, they're, they're being promised here an earthly inheritance. You're promised a heavenly inheritance that will never go away. So that's the first command. Be on your guard. Take care. Second command, be quiet. <laughs> Sometimes some of us need to be told, be quiet. Be calm. You can almost translate this, be at rest, I think. This term is used later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 30. I love this passage. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Don't you love that? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Not in madly rushing around to try to solve all your life's problems yourself. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Sadly, Isaiah is going to go on in, in this passage and say, but you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't rest. In me, you wouldn't trust me. You said we'll come up with our own way of saving ourselves. And God said, it won't work. It won't work. You're headed for annihilation. But he closes again that passage in chapter 30. Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. If you can quiet your heart, you can be calm and wait for God. He will rescue you. People of Israel experienced that right away at the Red Sea. You remember that episode? They get as far as the Red Sea, think they made it out, and they see it. then they see the whole army of Pharaoh heading after them. And now from great jubilation, suddenly they're, they're throwing up their hands. They think the world's going to end. And the message from God through Moses is... You don't have to do anything. Just be quiet, okay? <laughs> Just shut up and stand there, and I'll take care of this problem. That's essentially what he says. You can be quiet and calm because your God judges evil and saves the humble. Psalm 76, you, speaking to God, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still, was quiet. That's our verb there. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. He has, doesn't have a quiet heart. He has an agitated heart, a fearful heart, because he's not trusting in the Lord. 
God forbid that, describe us. Third command, stated in negative terms, don't fear. How often do we see God telling people in Scripture, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear the things of this earth. Proverbs, uh, giving wisdom from one generation to another in chapter 3 says, My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And what does sound wisdom and discretion look like? Where he goes on to say a little bit later, Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh, the Lord, will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Ahaz Ahaz should have had this memorized. His own forefather, David, counsels this again and again, provides examples of it again and again in the Psalms. Ahaz should have listened to, to David in Psalm 3 when he was literally fleeing for his life. And is he in terror? Well, now listen to what he says. O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It looks like David is on the edge of complete and utter disaster, including death. But you, he says, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Or Psalm 23, which you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Not because the evil disappears. Not because you don't have to walk through that valley. But it makes all the difference because the Lord is with you. We'll see that emphasized in a moment. He even says there in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm surrounded by enemies and I'm sitting down, provided for by you. Or Psalm 27, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Or Psalm 118, some other psalmist we think. Yahweh is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Ahaz could have just quoted that right back? I'm not afraid of these guys. I've got the Lord on my side. Don't be afraid. Fourth command, another statement in negative terms. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't let your heart be weak. Again, one who is on guard to do God's will and resting in his promises can be strong-hearted. In Deuteronomy 20, when instructions are being given for how God's people are to go to war, the priest is to say this to the Israelite armies, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. 
Let not your heart faint. Why? Because of your superior technology? Because you outnumber them? No. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for Yahweh, your God, is he who goes with you to fight for, for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Hear the echo of, of uh, David's uh, best friend, Jonathan, there. Eager to fight the battle, knowing that the Lord is with him. Cowardly king and people of Judah have trembled at the threat posed by the alliance of the kings of Israel and Syria. But they're really nothing. Look at how Isaiah describes them there in verse 4. They're a couple of smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're fierce anger. I think that word fierce anger, I think that's being used ironically. They're threatening you and they're fierce anger and they're nothing. No reason to be afraid of them. Notice again the repetition of the term son of Hermalia. Remember who that is, son of Hermalia. It's not the Davidic king. You don't have anything to fear of him. We see their threat a little more specifically, and I think this, this is put here purposely. Notice what their plot specifically is in verse 6. They want to depose Ahaz and put one of their own men there. And who is he? Well, he is the son of Tabeel. Who's that? Who cares? <laughs> Not a descendant of David. I mean, just, just to hear that, Ahaz should have thought, well, that, that will work. They, they can't thwart God's promise to David. And so in verse, verse 7, Isaiah wants to be as direct as possible with this cowardly king, with this, with this timid monarch. Thus says the Lord God. Note that your translation probably has God in all capitals. That's the name Yahweh, which they usually translate the Lord, but it would have sounded weird if they said the Lord, the Lord. So they use God in all capitals, but that's not the word for God. It's the personal name, Yahweh, for God's, that, that God gave to his covenant people. So why is the Lord prefixed before it? Well, it's to emphasize that the one who is your covenant God, Yahweh, is the Lord of all the earth. He's the ruler, the master of all. So the master, the ruler, the Lord, whom you know is to be Yahweh, has declared, it shall not stand. The idea is repeated a second time, in case you didn't hear it. It shall not come to pass. It's not going to happen. Should have been a word of promise that Ahaz grabbed onto. And notice verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. That's echoed in verse 9. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Why, why is he repeating head of, head of, head of, head of? Well, it's emphasized the fact that these are mere humans. Okay. These are mere earthly, earthly rulers. How are they going to stand against the Lord Yahweh? 
Notice again, for a third time, the use of that phrase, the son of Ramalia. Remember who this is, Ahaz. This is a nobody. And notice verses 8 and 9 then give a sandwich effect to put the central thought there in the last part of verse 8. I really think this is part of the whole, whole poem here, although it's not set off that way usually. Here's the heart of this. Here's what's really going to happen, God's saying. What actually is going to happen, not their plot, not what they're thinking. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. Ephraim is another name for Israel, that northern kingdom here. Saying to Ahaz, do you realize this big threat against you from the north is not even going to exist. And that exactly happens. That exactly happens. There's a, through a series of disasters, uh, forces of Assyria under Tiglath-Pileser will invade Israel within a few years of this and defeat them. After that, the Assyrian king Shalamansar would destroy Samaria, the capital, obliterate it, bringing an end to the northern kingdom and deporting many of its people. And the final coup de grace, about 65 years later, will come when the Assyrian king Esarhaddon colonizes Israel's territory with non-Jews. All hope of the rising of Israel ends at that point. Isaiah is telling Ahaz, the plots against you are not going to stand. God's going to judge and vindicate you. And so the last part of 9, then, is a warning. But in that warning, we see really the direction Ahaz needs to go, the direction we need to go, right? We've, we've been told, along with Ahaz, be on your guard. Be quiet, be calm, don't be afraid, strengthen your heart. So I've got a little warning here at the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, if you do not believe, some translations have here. The root of this word is, is the verb that we get the word amen from. So you get, it, it means basically uh, support, uh, affirm, confirm, and, and so you can see how that would lead into the meaning to believe. If you support something, if you confirm it, you believe it, you say amen to it. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he underscores the veracity of his word by amening what he's going to say even before he says it. He's saying amen, amen, you better believe it, you better believe it. If you don't believe, if you're not firm in faith, I like the translation firm in faith here because the second verb in the expression there is actually the same word. Slightly different form, but it's, a, it's the same word. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And there, of course, the idea is to establish, I think the King James uses established there. If you do not believe, you will not be established, but just remember it's the same same verb there. You're called to faith. Ahaz is being called to faith here. All he's got to do is believe. All he's got to do. 
Let's believe this word from the Lord. And isn't that what you're called to do? To believe the promises of God. Well, to even encourage him further, verse 11, God speaking through Ahaz again, ask a sign. Ahaz, I can see you're still shaken. I can see you're still frightened. Be glad to give you a sign to help you believe. I'd be glad to help you in your faith. And Ahaz pulls a uh, holier-than-thou move then. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put God to the test. Sounds very religious. It's actually insolent. God has commanded him to ask for a sign. And he's refusing. Why is he refusing? Well, if he asks for the sign and the sign comes true... He's going to be obligated. He doesn't want to be obligated because he's already decided that he doesn't believe. He's already decided he's going his own way. He's coming up with his own solution. He's one of these guys, I, I, can, I can handle it myself. I can meet this crisis in my own strength. I can handle what life throws at me in my own strength. I've got a plan we had time, we could go look at that plan. His plan is the most stupid plan. <laughs> His plan is he's going to ask Assyria for help. What an idiot. And that'll become evident in the rest of chapter 7. We won't read that, but those signs of judgment that you heard read in the Chapter 7 there, in that day, in that day, in that day. Notice, do you hear that repetition of that? That's a day of judgment. That's a judgment that's going to come on Judah because they trusted in Assyria. Ahaz trust in the gods of the culture around him. He even, he even goes to Damascus to meet this king of Assyria and looks at the way he worships and brings that back. He actually moves the bronze altar, puts it off to the side, and builds one that looks like the Assyrians and sacrifices there. And that's not enough. He winds up sacrificing his own children in the valley of the son of Hinnom. I'm telling you, you go down the road of the culture around you, and there are no limits to the depravity. Who do you believe? Do you believe the Lord or do you believe your own resources? Ahaz sadly chooses the latter. But God's not done. And so he says, well, you didn't ask for a sign. I'm giving you one anyway. And that's the text that we know so well from the Messiah. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's another one of those names that, like 
a remnant shall return. You hear this word in Hebrew, you're just hearing them say, God with us. She shall call his name God with us. And of course, this is pointing forward to the prophecy, point, pointing forward to the birth of Jesus. Why, why would that be a comfort if he would let it? Why would that be a comfort for Ahaz? Well, it's because Isaiah is saying, God is going to preserve the house of David. He has a plan. You think you've got to save the house of David yourself. You think you've got to fix your own problems. You think you've got to earn your own way. You just need to put your faith in God. This is a wonderful assurance to Ahaz if he would just hear that the house of David is not going to be uh, deposed by these mere human beings. And in addition to that, just the name here, God with us, that, that should have reminded Ahaz that, that that's always our assurance as God's people, isn't it? That's our only hope, that God is with us. You are not big enough on your own to handle all the problems that life brings you. You don't have the sufficient resources to deal with the realities of this life. But you don't have to, because God is with you. God is with you, and, 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 and how do you know that? Well, you know that because God became incarnate in Jesus Christ. God paid the ultimate price to join himself with you, to be with you. He took on human flesh. In order for him to be with you, he had to take your sin upon himself and suffer and die for that. In order for him to be with you, he had to clothe you with his righteousness so that you would be fit for his presence. If God did that, do you think he's not going to be with you from day to day? Do you think he's not going to be equal to the challenges that you face? Oh, if he's done that for you. Paul says, if, he, if, he, if God has given his own son for us, how will he not give us everything else, all the other things that we need. This promise is not just for Ahaz, it's for us, isn't it? God is with you. Be on your guard. Be on your guard through the word of God, through his Holy Spirit. Be alert. Don't sleepwalk through life. Be quiet, be calm, put your trust in God. Don't fear, don't fear. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. And don't let your heart be faint, strengthen your heart. How? 
by faith. Believe the promises of God and ask him to help you live out that faith in your work, in your home, all those callings that he's given you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for the promises of your word, promises that we never could have asked for in and of ourselves. Uh, who are we as frail and sinning creatures to ask you to do such marvelous things for us, and yet you have done them out of your grace. You've done them for us. You've, you've redeemed us in Christ. You've You've made a way for us to receive forgiveness. Help us to remember these things, Lord, and to live wholeheartedly, to live bravely, to live faithfully before you uh, from day to day, seeing the challenges that you bring to us, as Ahaz should have seen this challenge as an opportunity uh, to put our trust in you, uh, to see you save us, even in the midst of difficulties and trials, to see your hand sustaining us and keeping us until we're with your presence and fullness and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.